0: We are live. This is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I am uh, Mike. I'm not the questions. You're bringing the questions. You're loading them right now. We're going to get to question number one right now. And just so you guys know, there are timestamps down below in pretty much all of my 20 questions videos. This is episode 30. This is the 30th time I've done this. And we do it on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific time. But more importantly, here's question one from Tanya in South Africa. By the way, I will note we've got our question counter up there. I'm going to actually be able to put down the number of the question we're on because that's fun. All right. Tanya in South Africa asks, Dear Pastor Mike, there's so much debate going on amongst me, my family, and friends regarding watching movies that use the Lord's name in vain, like saying, Oh my G,' or when they get angry and say JC, could you shed some light please? So the question is, is there anything the Bible tells us if this is wrong or right to watch these movies, even if we ourselves are like, we're not using the Lord's name in vain, but we're watching movies like that. And, um, she also says that movies and series are full of using these phrases and we're not able to filter out or silence them. So thank you so much for your channel. It's been a blessing to me and my husband. That's awesome, Tanya. Say hi to your husband for me. And here's my, I admit ahead of time, my answer here is insufficient. Cause why, why do I say it's insufficient? Cause I'm not satisfied yet on this, on this topic and this question. And I'm, like, it seems weird to really wrestle and struggle with this issue. Here's some of my fears going in. In all honesty, very I'm, I'm very much human, a lot like you. And, um, and one of my worries is as I ask a question like this, is it okay to watch movies that have and fill in the blank or shows that have and fill in the blank? Some of these questions, it seems very easy to answer, right? Like um, if it has uh, pornographic content, like the answer is like, yeah, don't watch it. Like that's not okay. But other ones are harder um, for me because part of the reason is i like these movies like i want to watch these shows like i enjoy them i don't enjoy them taking god's name in vain but I enjoy a show. There's lots of shows I just want to watch or movies I want to enjoy and watch. And they may have elements in them that are compromised and those elements might be sporadic. And then I'm like, well, how much is too much? Or how much of the focus is that? Or I ask questions like, how does it affect me and those around me? And if I'm thinking, well, I'm mature and it's not really stumbling me, I feel like it's not you know, messing with me the way it would if I was 12 and watching it. Um, or perhaps I say, but how does it affect God? And then all of a sudden it gets harder to answer that question. <laughs> Um, how does God feel when his name is taken in vain? I don't think he cares for it very much. I I do think in scripture, there's those who say, and some of you will will already be thinking this as you're, many of you are, you know, you've been around the block theologically. So you understand some of this stuff. They'll say, you know, in scripture, when it says not to take God's name in vain, that's not really about saying like, you know, G-O-D, right? In the context of like an empty statement or saying God's name in a frivolous way or a light fashion, the way people use it almost like a cuss word or an emotional expression. Um, but I, I would disagree. Okay. So in the text of the, say the 10 commandments, for instance, not taking God's name in vain, it, it probably has to do with taking oaths, not taking oaths in God's name and then failing to fulfill them or lying in God while using God's name to try to like, you know, it's, it's like when we, I swear on and you, you name something, the Bible or on my kids or on God or God's throne or something. And it's true that it would apply to that. But I think my opinion is while that's true, and you could talk, scholars can talk about how in the context of Genesis and in the context of Exodus, when, when these things are being circulated circulating with the Israelites, that it's like, Hey, this is about oaths. But does that mean it's only about oaths? See, that's a good observation. It's about oaths, but is it only about oaths? It's written very generically. It's, it don't take God's name in vain is a very, very broad statement. And so Personally, I'm operating with the assumption that this does apply to just casually throwing out God's name in an empty fashion. Now, you could say, well, that limits it to God's name, which I would say in scripture is Yahweh or Jehovah or Jehovah, someone pronounce it. Okay, so does that mean I can take, I can say God and say that in vain? No, right? Because, Because this isn't just about the technicalities. We're talking about, this is about honoring God and who he is. And saying his, his name or speaking of him always with honor, always with appropriate humility, with appropriate, like love, adoration towards God at all times. That is to me, the heart of this thing. What's the heart of this command? And so somebody who throws out God's name as a cuss word is definitely violating the love of God, our number one command, right? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it does apply to that, is what I'm saying. I think it does apply to casual, empty statements about God, um, uh, mockery, of uh, uh, just, just vain or empty ways of talking about God. I think it applies to all of that stuff. So then the question that says, okay, well, if that's the case, you know, here's the things I wrestle with, um, and forgive me if I don't have the right answer for you guys on this one. When I watch a show, I'm not just observing it, I'm actually helping promote it, right? People are making money because I watch it because either advertisers are paying them or I'm paying a subscriber, a subscription thing, or I download it off some website that has ads that I'm using to monitor to watch this thing. Um, I or, or maybe I pay for a service that has, gives me access to thousands of, of movies and shows, but they monitor which shows people actually watch. And so effectively there's money changing hands because I'm, I'm t- partaking in the entertainment of this stuff. There's some kind of money-changing hands going on, which means that I am financially supporting the things that it took to make this product. Now, if there's somebody who's like, say, drunk on screen, they're not actually drunk usually. (laughs) They're not literally drunk. So I'm not supporting drunkenness. It's a portrayal of drunkenness for whatever end. Is it glorifying it? Is it good? Is it bad? But when they speak God's name in vain, it seems like there's no context. uh, There's little context that makes this justifiable. It's true that in scripture, sometimes people blaspheme and scripture records it but it records it for a good purpose. And so there could be a good purpose of recording a person saying God's name in vain, right? Because it's part of a story that you need to tell and it involves this. I, I don't think that is truthful, truth, in my opinion, I don't think it's truthfully in vain because there's a purpose and an intent that's actually good, Um, you know, as you communicate the story. So they blasphemed Christ in the in the Gospels, but we don't think that the authors of the Gospels did wrong for recording it. Right, there was a good purpose behind it. So there could be some context where it's good. It's generally not okay though, right? Uh, Most of the time, we're looking at stuff that's just wrong. All that being said, can I watch a show that I know ahead of time? Let's say it caught you by surprise. Let's just set that off off the table for now. That you know ahead of time, you're watching a show, you're rewatching a series, you're watching a movie you've seen before, and you know, 15 times in this two-hour program, they're going to take God's name in vain, and there's no contextual justification for it that you can think of. Is it okay to watch it? I want to say, I want to say yes, because I want to watch it. But so far, I can't think of a good justification. And if you tell me it doesn't affect me, Mike, then I'm like, good, I'm glad it doesn't affect you, but it's not about you. It's about God and his name. And so um, maybe, maybe the reason why I struggle answering this question is because I don't want to fall into this super strict category of I can't watch this and I can't watch that. But perhaps I'm the frog in the kettle. I'm the person who's, who's sitting here saying, I've got so many reasons why I don't want to restrict my own behaviors here that I'm the problem evaluating this question. And that may be the case. I'm not really sure the right answer here. I'm a, I want to say, take some liberties, follow your conscience. But in reality, I have a hard time justifying that maybe, maybe it's time to rethink my own, um, enjoyment of entertainment for the sake of loving God and not just having strict rules for my life, but of loving Christ, of honoring God and all that I do. And I don't know, maybe maybe I can readdress this at some other point. Um, I just want to take a moment and say, hey guys, I'm sorry that I've got some dropped frames again. This happened last week uh, when I did some other stuff. I'm going to continue with the stream. I did some speed tests. I thought my internet was doing all right. I hope that you guys aren't having problems there. Maybe you could let me know in the live chat if, if you see me clearly or if there's pauses and dropped frames going on. I would just like to know. Let's move on to question number two, since I <laughs> am still struggling personally with question number one. I need to think about this some more. Felicia Siosiola. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name there. Sorry. Uh, but Felicia says, in a video, you've, you said some things that have been provided on the cross, but not fully finished. One of them was being free from the enemy's power. Isn't that finished? Colossians 1.13 and Acts 26.18. Um, so let, let me give you as an example of this kind of category of something that I, you know, I, I'll use the terminology here provided on the cross, but hasn't been finished yet. Um, I, I, I wouldn't probably use the word finished. I don't think that's the best word to use there. I would say you've, prov- it's been provided for you because of the cross in virtue of the cross, but you have not yet fully experienced the benefits of it. I would probably put it that way to be more careful. So eternal life is one of those things. I have eternal life now, but I, but the eternal life, the quality of life I live in glory for all eternity, you know, in the presence of God, like I have the ability to enter into the presence of God, like the right to do so by right of the cross, by Jesus giving, laying his rights down and taking my sin and then giving me in a sense, some of his rights. Okay. All that, that great exchange. I have the ability to come into the presence of God unashamed, but I'm not actually in God's presence in the fullest, I mean, he's he's within me, but I'll be with him in a bigger way, in a closer way, in a dearer way in the future when God Himself is our light and He's with us and in us and through us and all around us in even greater capacities. So that's one example of something like that. But you mentioned Colossians one thirteen and Acts twenty six eighteen. Let's look at those passages. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son okay this verse you're, this is something that God has already done for us he's delivered us from the domain of darkness right he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son okay that's true I, this relates to your question because you were like um being free from the enemy's power is that finished are we are we fully completely and utterly in every capacity free from the enemy's power um sort of <laughs> but let me let me read another verse before we we talk about this acts 26 18. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness um, of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is what's going to happen to... This is Jesus telling Paul what he's going to be doing as he preaches the gospel to others. So that's why it's red letters here, right? But we're delivered from the power of Satan. Is a Christian delivered from the power of Satan or not? Well, yes, we are. But we're still in the world. And I think I would I would consider this... Um, it has to do with our wills, right? And, and whose kingdom we belong to. When you're in the kingdom of, of Satan, you're in the kingdom of darkness, then you are blind to the truth of the gospel of Christ. You're not aware of the truth of the gospel of Christ. You're also not aware. You're, you're not receiving it. It's not part of, you know, your, your, your faith and your beliefs. But you're also, um, you've got some other things going on. You've got the forgiveness of your sins, whereas in in, in Satan's kingdom, you're part of the condemnation that that Satan experiences as well as all who are in his kingdom, part of the rebellion against God. So you're delivered from that rebellion. You're also delivered from the power and the control of Satan. But that doesn't mean there can't be any influence of Satan in your life as a Christian. So I can be delivered from that kingdom. I'm not part of the corporate kingdom of Satan, but it doesn't mean there's absolutely no influence that Satan can have in my life. Now that might seem like a strange thing to say. Um, Let me... me let me look for a specific verse for you here Um, I'm thinking of Galatians let me see if I can find it and then I'll take you guys to it I'll go to 2nd Corinthians 2nd Corinthians 2 11 Um, so this passage um, I'll just start reading from verse 10 Uh, oh hold on (laughs) Let me go with the bigger text. 2 Corinthians 2.11. Backing up just a bit. Uh, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, I've forgiven anything. If I forgive anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Uh, right now, it seems in 2 Corinthians 2, what Paul's talking about is bringing people sort of back into the body of Christ after they have they had ongoing rebellious sin. They were like re- rejected from the fellowship as a result, but in the hopes that they would repent and return. So not like an angry, mean thing, but a, hey, there's consequences for your decisions. Then they come back and he's like, forgive them. I forgive them. Welcome them back. Hold nothing against them. They've turned from those things. Verse 11, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. So he realized there's an ongoing struggle. The church has with Satan still. And now Satan meaning that Satan himself was bugging the Corinthians? No, probably Satan's kingdom, right? This is part of that whole kingdom mentality of those who are fighting against the gospel, fighting against Christ. Satan's sort of the puppet master behind a lot of that, but he's not necessarily the agent doing everything that the Bible says Satan does because he's like giving credit. Right now, um, if, if, if the U.S. Army does something, then with President Biden in office, you could say Biden does it even though he's not the one actually doing it, right? Because he's he's the one who's like the chief, the commander in chief. Um, so yeah, we, we have an ongoing str- struggle with Satan, right? We're, we're actually to put on the armor of God in Ephesians because we have a struggle against Satan that we still have like, it's a legitimate battle that we go through. And um, uh, let me take you to uh, the armor of God, right? Be strong in the Lord, Ephesians chapter six, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. Right, because what we we don't wrestle against flesh and blood people, but we're wrestling against all these spiritual realities and battles that are going on. So, are we freed? Yes. Are we still in a battle that's ongoing? Yes. The way in which we're freed is we switched kingdoms, but we're still part of the battle between the kingdoms. Which, by the way, is a it's a Red Rover battle. <laughs> it's a, sort of like the old the old kids game Red Rover. It's kind of like that, in that we're trying to see people from from Satan's kingdom come over to our kingdom. We're not trying to destroy them. We're against the powers controlling the people, but we're for the people trying to see them transferred over to the kingdom of light. I hope that answers your question. And um, we'll move on to number three. So R. Fish has a question. Thank you for your dedication to helping others understand scripture. I've learned a lot from you. Thank you, R. Ronald Fish. I don't know what your first name is, but um, the, uh, the, the, the the messages that we get like this about the impact it's had on your guys' lives is very encouraging very, very encouraging to me. I'm grateful for that. Uh, could you explain the difference between the Aaronic Levitical and Melchizedek priesthoods? Usually it's called a Melchizedekian priesthood, but yeah, uh, let me talk a bit, little bit about that. So the Aaronic priesthood uh, usually refers to, well, let me start with the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests are those who are doing the stuff you read about in Leviticus. They're priests in particular operating in the temple. In the, in the tabernacle, depending on the, where you are in the Old Testament at the time, or the temple. And there, they're doing the sacrifices. Or I should say, they're more preparing the, the sacrifices, preparing all the sundry things, moving the tabernacle here and there, doing all sorts of tasks that priests have. And they're spread throughout Israel. They're also meant to be, I think, teachers to the people. They're supposed to learn and understand the word and be able to help teach it to others. The Aaronic priesthood is kind of like a subcategory because the name Levitical priesthood gets, gets their name from what tribe of Israel they were. They were the Levites. So technically, the entire tribe is the Levites. They're Levitical in a sense. And the priests are those who are of a certain age and they are doing certain tasks to help out with everything related to the temple and that whole system. The Aaronic priesthood is like a subclass within the Levitical priesthood. They're all Levites, but specifically they're descendants of Aaron. Aaron is the guy, right? When Moses, you know, parts the sea, when he does all this, his brother Aaron is right there with him. He's the first high priest of Israel. And from Aaron's descendants, that's where you would get the high priests. And that's where you would get the priests who would do more of the like, more important roles in the tasks of the temple, more of the sacrificial stuff going inside of the actual tabernacle itself. This is more Aaronic priesthood. So they had like, um, they're, they're a class within the priests, Levitical priests, and then Aaronic priests. These get to have the highest, most important jobs in the temple that they, they all represent Christ in a different fashion, but the Aaronic priesthood represents Christ in the greatest fashion. He's our one person who goes before all people. And, um, and represents us before God. But then the Melchizedekian priesthood is very different than the other two. So Melchizedek, we read about in the book of Genesis. He he comes up very briefly. Abraham, his the story is that Lot and his uh, family are taking, and other people around him are taking captive a bunch of people. And Abraham takes an, uh, basically an army, a, a, a militia of men, and they go and they rescue lot and his people and there's a bunch of spoils from this war from this battle that went on these five kings that they fought and they're on their way back to deliver you know these people back to um to their homes and on their way back abraham meets melchizedek and melchizedek is he's not jesus i don't believe he's jesus i have a whole video on this you could look up mike winger melchizedek it should pop right up so if you want more details this is just a quick answer melchizedek is the king of salem right? Or, or good chance this is modern or, you know, modern Jerusalem is where Salem was. There's more than one Salem. So there's some debate on which location it was. I lean towards thinking it's Jerusalem. So he's the King of Salem. He's his name Melchizedek means King of righteousness. And he's a picture of Jesus in a number of ways. So here's a few of them real quick, right? Melchizedek, he is, is, uh, brings bread and wine to Abraham and Abraham gives him a tithe of 10% of all of the spoils from this battle. And this is to say that uh, Hebrews uses this to say so Abraham is somehow showing that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is. Abraham's lesser than Melchizedek. Why is this? He's just this random dude. He's a king and he's a priest. Interesting, and he's greater than Abraham. I guess I'm getting. I'm going to get too long in this. So I'll give you the short answers. Okay, Melchizedek's like Jesus because he's the king of uh, king of Salem or the king of peace, as Jesus is the king of peace. Also, he's the he's the king of kings reigning from Jerusalem, right? So Jesus is the King of Salem in a very literal sense. Also his name means King of righteousness. Well, Jesus is the King of righteousness and he's the righteous King. Melchizedek is a high priest. He's a priest, right? He's also a King. Jesus has both roles, priest and King, and he fulfills son of David, right? And the Aaronic priesthood are both fulfilled in Christ. We also have the tithe being given because just as Melchizedek is better than Abraham. So Jesus is greater than Abraham and Hebrews points this out. Uh, from Abraham come the Levites and come the whole priesthood system. Melchizedek is a, of, a, of, a, of a different kind of priesthood order that's better than what's in the law. That's really important because Jesus, he's the next Melchizedek. This is from Psalms uh, 105, is it? 101, 104, 110. It's right in there <laughs> uh, where it says that, Melch- that Jesus, the Messiah, he's going to be a, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so Jesus and Melchizedek are the only two people that are of the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek is is following the pattern of Melchizedek. It's not like the Aaronic priesthood where every son of Aaron had the potential of being an Aaronic high priest. Um, it's not like the Levitical priesthood where every son of Levi. Melchizedek is not genetically connected to Jesus. Rather, Melchizedek is a model, a type of what Christ will be like. And this is embedded in Genesis so that we would know there's a bigger plan about the ultimate Messiah that's bigger than even the law, and the law only speaks to him. The priesthood only speaks to him. He's the priesthood after the order a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's Melchizedek. Melchizedek's primary role is typology. He doesn't have a genealogical ancestry of a bunch of Melchizedekian priests. Modern-day Mormonism thinks that they have the Melchizedek Melchizedekian priesthood, that they are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. There are 17-year-olds that come to your door. 18 year olds, depending on whatever age they are, they come to your door. They believe they are priests, according to the order of Melchizedek, but that's like an unbiblical thing. There's only two people, Melchizedek and Jesus, that fit that bill. All right, let's go to the next question. Number four. And um, Jay Sianza uh, uh, or Chiancha says, Chiancia? I don't know. Uh, how does one justify God's directive to kill the. Oh, just skipped, to kill the Amalekites, specifically the children and even infants in 1 Samuel 15, 3. This is a question I've received a bunch of times. Before I answer this, I want to say no more questions for today. We have all 20 already loaded. I've got them now from you guys that we just picked up. I'm going to answer as many as I can. And I hope hopefully it's of great benefit to you. So how do we justify God's order to kill the Amalekites, specifically the children and even infants in 1 Samuel 5, 15, 3? There's a couple different approaches people take to this passage. I'm going to mention a couple. Because I'm not entirely sure which one is correct. Um, now, here's the verse. Now, go and strike the strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. But do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So every every living thing. Um, l- let me see. There's uh, Paul Copan c-o-p-a-n you can look him up and you can find him online doing lectures and talking about this passage he's devoted uh, he's a scholar legit scholar who's devoted a lot of time and energy to this very topic he has a book called called is god a moral monster another book that's just recently come out that also addresses this issue which i'll plug for us is dan kimball's book how to, how not to read the bible uh you can see the subtitle here which you might find interesting uh, anti-women anti-science pro-violence pro-slavery this is, this is the opinion people have of the Bible, and he's going to talk about all those types of issues. So those are books I'd recommend. I'll give you my off-the-top-of-the-head answer, which is um, uh Polka Pons' approach is that this destruction is is hyperbolic language. And that sounds convenient to people. That's convenient. That's really convenient. It's not really literally killing man, woman, child, infant, ox, and sheep. Um but paul copan actually builds a case for this and there's there's a reason to think it might be hyperbolic because it will say that they killed they did this they fulfilled this and all the amalekites are gone and then we have more amalekites like a couple chapters later okay so there's some hyperbole going on here of some kind it seems and they'll say this was normal this was typical language if you if you uh, use this language it's, it's it's a language of destruction or destroy that town so that's possible um, another possibility is that uh, and, and they would point this I think polkaense says the same thing that um, this location these amalekites this location is not a town like you're thinking of it's more of a military depot okay so it's it's a it's a military target um, That's also possible as well but I want to back up one step from all this and I want to suggest this something that I think many people today are going to find extremely that we we lose our Genuine reverence and fear of God that's appropriate and proper. So I think humans who say, I'm going to go and just kill, fill in the blank, that that's wrong. And we know that that's morally wrong. But God is not us. God is not a man. He's not a human. And he's not limited by the things that limit us. I think that God has a right to do what he wants with his creation. This is something I truly believe. I think it's irrational. I think it's immoral to suggest that he doesn't have a right to do what he wants with his creation, including judging corporately groups or individuals. And he doesn't seem to even have to feel like he's got to explain it to us always. I'm going to do this because it's what's right and what I'm going to do. I think that God has that right. And that if you don't believe this about God, that God who created the universe who created you, designed your DNA, who made you, who, like you're a living soul because he made you. If you don't have this in your mind, then you're going to have a hard time trying to go and evaluate what God has done or at least what scripture gives us about what God has done in the past. I know that this is an unsatisfying answer for some people. I think there's a lack of respect for God in this in this case. Let me add a few other details that might help. Um, infants who die, like you don't have a right to kill them. I don't have a right to kill him, but I think God does actually. Like that's, that's the, I mean, like we used to say this phrase, like, who do you think you are? God, because behind this phrase is the idea that God has a right to do what he wants with his creation. So, but infants who die, um, according to scripture, I believe that this group, this biblical teaching is that they go to be in the presence of God so that while he was judging a community and he's judging a culture, yet these individuals are being brought into his presence for all eternity and they will see that they were they were the collateral damage of judgment that was to show God's righteousness and to to deal with sin in the earth but then they're ushered into God's presence forever. So like here the thousands of years in God's presence or thousands of years with with peace and a moment of 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 terror truly to show the wickedness of sin. I think that that makes sense. I I would I don't have a right to call out when that's supposed to happen. I'm not God. But I think God does. And um th- that's honestly this is my answer to you. I think this often comes down to not the issue of understanding the judgments, but the issue of whether we think we have a right to tell God that he's wrong. God is perfect, he's morally good, he's holy, but he also has a moral right to do what he wants with his creation. And if he decided to just nuke the entire planet Earth right now with all of the people on it, that would that would be his, his prerogative to do that. I think that's the fear of the Lord, and I think it's the beginning of wisdom. And it's going to be hard to answer tough questions questions like this without the beginning of wisdom in our lives so how does one justify god's directive uh in a sense i don't i i I say i want to understand it better but i don't have to justify it because god has a right to do what he wants with his creation that's it now the only thing i'll add to this is you know this much of the story right you know this much of the story you don't know all the surrounding issues you generally people don't want to know the surrounding issues because they often want to use these to these passages to like demonize scripture um, and others may answer this better. I know Dan Kimball gets into more details. I read a section of his book where he talks about this. You might check that out, how to how not to read the Bible. Um, and he's not paying me to say that. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to tackle the next question, which is going to be from Ricardo Sierra. Hello, Pastor Mike. My question is, what would be your opinion on well-sound on well slash sound doctrine pastors who share stages with false prophets, will they be considered guilty by association? Uh, Ricardo, that's a tough choice to make. So like I get invited to speak at a lot of things now. And I actually just say no all the time because I, I know what I'm focused on and I'm gonna stay focused on that. But there's times where I'm invited to share or go do something. And I know someone would share a stage there and it would be someone I disagree with. And then I've now that I've been the guy in that spot, being offered that, that role to be able to talk I wonder. I might do it just to reach people. Like I'm reach I'm here's a community that I, I think there's there's issues in, but they're still my brothers and sisters. But there's problems. But I could bring light. I could bring help. I could bring you know understanding. And yet, if I share a stage with this person, perhaps it will, without me even saying it, perhaps it will lend lend my support towards them. People will think I'm endorsing them because I just happen to be speaking at an event they're also speaking at. And this is probably not usually the case. Most of the time, speakers who are speaking at an event, they don't endorse everybody at that event. They just think they can bring some benefit to the people there. So I think for us, it, we might tone down, tone it down a bit and go, you know, just because you share a stage with somebody like at an event, like you might not have even know when they were there. Maybe you didn't know they were there and you had other reasons why you thought it was worth doing. I wouldn't judge people too much for who they share a stage with. Now, it's different if as a pastor, I bring somebody into my church That implies my endorsement of what they're going to say because I brought them there. But if I'm the guest and you're the guest, I don't want to pretend that we're endorsing each other. We're both just guests. We're both invited to be part of it. So I think we should have a little bit of grace towards that. Um, One of the dangers in my view with this stuff is there are those of us who care very deeply about doctrine like me and you. (laughs) And uh, we can start to be like, there's so many teachers out there. I just want like a list of who's approved and who's not approved. And this can become a little bit hazardous because what we do is we go, okay, well, I know this person's no good. Who's everyone he's ever done anything with? Okay, they're definitely no good. Okay, now who's everyone who's done anything with any of those guys? Okay, now they're not any good. And so pretty soon we start calling people uh, heretics or false teachers or false prophets because of their second and third tier association with somebody else who we think is, is false. And in all this, life is complicated. We just have to let it be complicated. Um, I would rather judge a teacher based upon what they teach, not who they share the stage with. That's my short my short answer on that. Uh, Stephanie Dreigger, Drag, but you guys have some hard last names today. Dragger, um says, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 6. It quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Why does the end of verse 6 say scourge, not correct? I get the first part, but to say God brutally whips every believer sounds like a a misquote. Why does it imply that? Thanks. Let's look at this together, shall we? Um, Proverbs. First, let's look at Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 3, verse 11 and 12. And we'll talk about how the New Testament quotes this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Okay, let me this is the ESV. Let's look at the same. What are the words being used about the reproof? Okay Don't reproof don't despise his discipline Then we have uh, here's the nasb different translation uh, My son do not reject the discipline of the lord or loathe his reproof whom the lord loves he reproves Okay, so it's in discipline reproof are the words being used here let's let's look at the say the niv my son do not despise the discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in all right now we're going to look at hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 he says uh have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and then quotes proverbs my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now that's the word chastises probably that stands out here because chastising implies like like some sort of punishment that you feel, okay, in the analogy of, of a father and son. Uh, let's look at the NASB of the same one. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord disciplines, uh, loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Okay, so th- this one's probably even more clear. Scourges. Verse six is really the, the, the interesting verse here. NIV says, chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now, oftentimes what you've got to try to explain this, what you've got in these um, New Testament passages is um, a quote of perhaps a Septuagint or the Greek translation that was available to them at the time. They're writing in Greek in Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, right? And so when they go to quote a scripture, they may be quoting a Greek translation of the Old Testament they had available at the time. So actually quoting the Hebrew, they're quoting a translation of the Hebrew into Greek That may be the reason for the differences here. Now, it's interesting to me. This is really, a side note. It's interesting to me that the authors of the New Testament don't seem to be too hung up on translations. They do care about them. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we shouldn't care, right? The Passion Translation is a bad translation, right? The message is not a reliable uh, source for really accurately understanding the text, right? Generically understanding it, perhaps, but not really accurately, carefully, in my opinion. But um, but it's interesting to me that the New Testament authors w- thought it was like, okay, that translations, re- they record things slightly differently. And this wasn't like a big hang up for them. Now on other, in other places, now I don't know if this is a direct quote from the Septuagint. I'd have to actually go look it up in, in a commentary and try to find out or look up the Septuagint itself and see, does it use the word chastises in Proverbs 3.11? But um, a broader point I want to make is this translations are okay. <laughs> translations are okay. I'm looking at multiple translations. You can look at multiple translations. Now, the word chastises is not the same. It seems identical to the word that's being used in the Hebrew in Proverbs. But is it is it a fair representation of it? And I think the answer here is yes. So as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines or rebukes or reproofs those who who he loves. The only reason why a father and son imagery is being brought into place in Proverbs is because fathers actually punish their kids, right? You, you don't do the same kind of discipline towards other non-children people in your life, but towards your kids, you discipline them. Proverbs definitely speaks of discipline as being physical discipline, right? When, when a kid's small, there's like an actual physical discipline. You know, the phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child. Now we react to this like, oh, that's abuse. Well, it can be abuse, it can be abused but the same Bible's telling us to love people and this is our primary call so we're not talking about that we're talking about appropriate fatherly discipline to children so something our, our culture doesn't like but is a good thing i think contextually the the proverbs passage it's implying chastening or scourging in that same fatherly sense not the way that jesus was scourged right that's a different kind of scourging we're talking about a father disciplining the son whom he loves we're not talking about rage we're not talking about wrath those are all modern um, ways of just demonizing the text of scripture. But now let me go back to your question and read how you worded it because I think the way you worded it is concerning a little bit here. So let me just be straight with you about it. Um, Stephanie says, I get the first part, but to say God brutally whips every believer sounds like a misquote. What does it imply? Thanks. So scourging can be what Jesus had when they ripped his flesh apart with these cat nine tails type device, or it can also be, a spanking like a, a, a an appropriate age-appropriate non-violent like not abusive spanking that's possible too and and so that obviously is what's implied because in context it's a father who loves his son and out of love providing the proper discipline so it's not brutally whips that's not the context like that's a translation that i think even the apostles would say that's too far so that there you go. Hopefully that helps. Uh, Kristen Linker has a question or did I skip one? Or did I just forget? Oh, I did skip one. I did them out of order. Okay, I'm sw- switched six and seven. I did them out of order. Ricardo Sierra has a question. This should have been number six. Hello, Pastor Mike. My question is what would be your opinion on well or no, I already did that. What did I miss? Did I just not hit the button? Whatever. I'm going to eight. Kristen Linker says James one fifteen ends with and sin when full grown gives birth to death. If we're in Christ, what does he mean by death? Is he speaking about unbelievers? Any insight to this verse is helpful. Yeah, powerful verse. Okay, James chapter one, verse 15. It talks about the origin of sin. Um, his main point here, let's not miss the main point. His main point is, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Don't blame your temptations on God. This is actually part of a uh, the the well, gosh, it's part of a lot of movements today. I want to pick one, but it's actually part of several movements. I'm this way because God made me this way. Um, so like I know uh, the atheist and mythicist Richard Carrier came out as polyamorous not too long ago. He's like, I'm polyamorous. I'm not designed to be faithful to one woman. I'm supposed to have lots of ladies, um, right? Here's where I would say. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Like this is how I was made. Now he's an atheist. So he doesn't think God made him that way. But this is the progressive Christian version of it is God made me this way, so I'm supposed to act it out. Well, that's what James 1.13 seems to be pushing against. Uh, don't say it's God who, who, who's doing this to you. Here's your right perspective on temptation. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each, one is, each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. This is why a healthy Christian worldview will, will look at desires as a, a potential problem, not always a problem, right? Because I desire to honor God. I desire to, to, to be a good husband. Like, those are good desires. But I'm tempted when I'm lured and enticed by my own desires. So I realize my heart's a mixed bag. It gives me good things. It gives me bad things. Any a view of humanity that doesn't acknowledge that my heart can be the source of temptation for bad things is going to lead me into a train wreck of a life. And a lot of our modern sexual ethic in particular side note here, is based on the idea that what your heart really, really wants is something you should really, really get. That's dangerous and that's definitely not a Christian worldview. It's not consistent with Christ. It's not consistent with Scripture. There's no version of Christianity where that works. But each one is tempted when he's lured away, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then it talks about the progression. So that's temptation. You have not actually sinned yet. You've been tempted. You want something. You have not sinned just by wanting it. Like, you're, you're you're attracted to that person over there. You have not sinned yet Then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin Now the debate here and for some people is like what does it mean when desire is conceived and I would suggest that desire is conceived When it like joins to your will there's like a joining of I want something in my heart And now i'm making a decision to yield myself to it. Now. It gives birth to sin now. It creates sin So um, I treat those desires as something that's happening to me, not something I'm willing, I'm I'm choosing to yield to. Once I choose to yield to it, whether it becomes fantasy or I take actions based on it, now it becomes sin. Then there's the passage, the statement you asked about here. Uh, And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. When my sin grows up, I die. It's interesting that sin, when it has its fullest life, brings in me death. when it reaches its greatest level of maturity, I die. That's just such an interesting like and stark contrast because when we feed our sin it does feel like we're in we're, we could feel like we're giving life to something in us that we think is wonderful. but the end result of this thing is going to be death. Now the question you have is how does this apply to believers? Is sin gonna is, is death here going to be like like death death like um, the second death like judgment? Or is it death of something else? Um, well, James doesn't really specify, I don't think. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, he just doesn't seem to specify. He could be talking about when you when you fully give your life over to sin, you finally end up, you know, apart from God forever. Like, that's a possible understanding of this. But it's also possible he's just saying sin kills things. It's, it's going to bring forth death into your life. It's going to bring death and harm and, and suffering into your life. And that could also be true right like your your sin killed your marriage your sin killed your reputation your sin killed you know so there's an element where you could say okay it could apply to that i don't know if, how often they would use the word death in that kind of context you killed this thing in my life that was important to me that's possible too it could also be that you um it, well, what i'm saying here is there's an ambiguity here the point is that sin kills sin kills that's the point if you want to say i'm going to apply this to like whether believers can lose their salvation or not i think you're going to have to read that into the text. I think it's not clear what the text is saying about the potential fate of believers versus non-believers. This is one of many passages when it comes to Once Saved, Always Saved, where you're going to take the beliefs you already have and you're going to read them into the passage. That's just what you're going to have to do because it because it leaves ambiguity here. It just doesn't answer your question. So my recommendation is you go to other passages to establish the, the, your beliefs about Once Saved, Always Saved, and then you, you go, I have this biblical grid now. I apply it to this passage as well to clear up the ambiguity. And on that issue, I don't have, uh, I don't have more clarity for you on that. So, going to number nine, um, arrive. Dersey five says, "I'm struggling with trusting and wanting Christ. How do you stop keeping the Holy Spirit at arm's length distance spiritually?" Um, well, arrive. This is a very important question. It's a very deep question, but it's also like a super personal question. Uh, My, my best advice to you is have this conversation with somebody who is older in the Lord than you and who is mature and who you think you can trust with the details of what's going on in your life. Have this conversation with them. Like just really honestly, please survey in your life who's, who's available to you. reach out and 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 pick the best option you've got and tell them the details you're dealing with i will give you some encouragement though because i'm not trying to leave you high and dry i'm just letting you know this is going to be insufficient because you need some back and forth you need some one-on-one back and forth and i can't do this because of there's too many uh requests for it it's impossible for me so uh here's here's the thought um you said i'm struggling with trusting and wanting christ how do you stop keeping the holy spirit at arm's length distant spiritually um you can, you, can, you can make decisions about your will. You can't make decisions about your heart. Like you don't actually get to pick what your heart's going to do. Um, but you can make decisions that will eventually affect your heart. The analogy I give all the time, someone gave me years ago, is that you're like a train and the, 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 um, the engine car that's in the front of the train, this is like your your faith and your will. These are the choices you make. And then the caboose of the car is like your heart now if you let the caboose drive the train you're going to be in a lot of trouble because the heart's going to go all over the place but if you make decisions based on faith you'll turn a corner right, in your life but your heart doesn't feel it yet eventually if you just stay steadfast on that path this new direction of drawing near to God of obeying God in your life of choosing to trust God eventually the heart will make it around the corner as well Ooh, almost dropped that this is, my, this is my remote by the way this is how I make the numbers go up and down I feel like I'm going to set off a bomb every time I push the button So that being said, um, stop focusing on what you want and how you feel, and instead, this is my counsel, hopefully it's on target for you, focus on just doing right things, just doing right things and honoring Christ in behaviors and actions. That's a will thing. I'm just going to do this because it honors Christ. I'm just going to get in the word. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to worship whether I feel it or not. I am just going to turn from this sin and engage in this godly behavior instead. And so you you, you move it away from trying to fix your heart and you instead fix your focus upon Christ, your life upon Christ, and you let your heart work itself out over time. Be patient. You'll get there. That would be my counsel. And I have lived through that myself. I believe it's true. Uh Tony ocean Oshin- Oshikanlu says, Does Luke 12, 44 through 48 teach purgatory? There are four servants, the faithful one sent to unbelievers, and then two others that only receive punishment, not casting out. Let's look at the passage. Luke 12, 44 through 48. This is probably a really good example of a tough passage to respond to. Um which I like because sometimes it's the challenging questions that help us really flesh out our understanding of, of topics. So Luke twelve forty four, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master's delaying is coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant... You have lost my spot. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Um, okay. So let me read the question again and see how you've interpreted this passage. This is the end of a, of a parable Jesus tells. I won't get into the whole parable. I think a lot of you guys are familiar with parables in general. You could look it up. Luke 12, um, starting in verse 35, I guess. Um, so you say there's four servants, the faithful, the one sent to unbelievers, and then two others that only receive punishment, not casting out. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know that there actually are four. Let's just read the whole parable, okay? Let's just make sure we get this right. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour. You do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling us a parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? he gives him another parable in response. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the Lord will set over his household to give them portion of uh, their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes the idea is we should be found faithful faithfully serving god faithfully blessing others when he returns truly i say to you he will set him over all his possessions and there's like a future uh government of god and you'll be in it and your your role in it seems different based on that faithfulness but if that servant says to himself my master is delayed in his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him and so at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful the implication here is that there may be in my mind there may be people who are serving like they're even in positions of authority in the church he doesn't say whether they were saved or not saved but they have roles of authority in the church and they're abusing the people of god and then they are cut in two you know cut in pieces in the analogy they're given judgment is what it seems Right? They're, they're, these people are not ultimately saved. But the idea is is not about I think who's saved and who's not saved. I think the idea is about there's a reckoning about how we handle our, our lives and how we obey Christ one day. And that servant who knew his master's will, now these are not, I think, two different categories of servants. You have the faithful and the unfaithful servant. I think rather this is about how extremely will we be judged. This is not two additional people in the parable. This is rather a new lesson. At the end of the parable and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act. So this is with knowledge, um, according to his will will receive a severe beating because okay? you knew it and you didn't do it. You're going to get a severe beating or there's greater. Here's the, here's the bottom line. The beating is, is an analogy. What's the beating? Well, whatever God does to fulfill that. But the point is you knew what to do and you didn't do it. It's going to be worse for you. Judgment's worse for you. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating in other words judgment is proportional. Jesus is now talking about future judgment and his lesson here is it's proportional. That's all I get out of this. It's proportional. Future judgment is proportional. Um somebody who it, it it they they face God, they stand before God on judgment day and they were largely ignorant of the gospel of Christ. They lived a life where they sinned and they just kind of like, you know, there wasn't this obvious active resistance to God, but there was sin. They did they did reject the re- re- revelation of God in creation. They rejected what God was telling them to do with their conscience. They they didn't honor God in their life. There's going to be suffering for that. Then there's a person who like actively went out there to to destroy the gospel of Christ, even though somewhere in their mind, they kind of knew it was true, but they just hated it, right? Like they're going to get much worse judgment. They knew and they did it. Um, Yeah, to everyone who, to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So I, I just don't know that I would go beyond that. Um, let me look at your question one more time here before we move on there's four servants the faithful the ones sent to unbelievers and then two others that only receive punishment not casting out see I I would disagree I I think there's two servants then there is a discussion about degrees of punishment based upon knowledge and I would interpret the parable that way so therefore is it about purgatory Um, no Um, because the, the the state of those people whether they're saved or unsaved is not mentioned we don't know What's going on with those those two? They receive different beatings. Okay, Th- those could both be condemned. They could both be people who are in hell, ultimately, and they suffer depending on the the, the the sins they've committed and the knowledge they had, which means degrees of punishment that are equal to what they've done. This may have nothing to do with purgatory. Now, the one thing I'll add is this a lot of people will try to find purgatory in a passage where it doesn't actually teach purgatory. So what I kind of want is the Bible to teach me that there is a, a such a place as purgatory. Then I could I could say it's an option for a passage like this. But because the Bible doesn't actually give us purgatory anywhere, it's hard to like, y- we're doing our theology backwards. We're going, that could happen in purgatory. And I'm like, well, technically it could. But the passage didn't say anything about purgatory. You'd have to assume purgatory to put those guys in purgatory. If we're just talking about two destinations, heaven and hell, then I would that would imply that um, those people are in hell, so to speak, at least at some point. All right, let's look at the next question, number ten. Did I do it again? Number (laughs) eleven. (laughs) Wolpack says hey Mike a lot of classical art has nudity in it like the statue of David how should Christians approach this art is it okay to like it or to make art similar to it thank you and God bless Wolpack, I have given this some thought and um, I haven't really changed my opinion all that much over the years I think classical art well let me put it this way Um, we all should agree that pornography is wrong morally wrong that viewing naked images of other people that they're not your spouse right and you're not like father taking care of your little baby or something like that but looking at naked images of other people is wrong this is something that's wrong this has to do with the fact that man man is still in a fallen state and we need to not do this um it's considering uh, considered a shameful thing and embarrassing thing you know it's, it's a wrong thing but what if they're really really artfully done naked images like i just i just have to admit um, at least you're asking me my opinion here. My opinion is there's no substantial difference between high quality pornographic images and low quality pornographic images when it comes to morality. I don't see the moral difference here. And so I, what I see is man is sinful. Man wants to do sinful things. This is, this is you know, we're going to sell clothing. Okay, we'll, we'll get the most attractive woman we can to be in our clothes because it's going to cause more sales because that's the way it works we'll make our clothes more low cut we'll make our clothes more revealing we'll make them more and more and more and more and more and we'll make it high art but we'll do high art now and I, I just honestly can't conceive of any significant moral difference between low art taking pictures of women with my phone drawing naked women with my hand versus high art you know a great skilled artist makes a naked person out of marble like now it's okay and I can tell you I remember being a 12 year old boy 12 year old boy doesn't see no difference between those two <laughs> 12- year old boy's not like "hmm this is high art right that's what the boy thinks as he's looking at this shirtless woman sculpture yeah he's just thinking this is this is different this is art no he's not he's like, whoa I like that that's just our carnal nature so I see I honestly see no difference there. I think that what man does is we take our sin and we dress it up in the in the prettiest image we can we call it art. And this has infected a lot of a lot of the art of our world. Um, my honest thought on that I do believe that that's true. And yeah, number twelve. I'm having trouble understanding the morality of Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. Some say it's consensual, but this contradicts Second Samuel. 13 i'll I'll go to these passages Uh, how do you interpret it and justify the morality of this law let's just look at the first two passages and try to figure out what this dilemma is really all about deuteronomy 22 verses 28 and 29 if a man meets a virgin who's not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they're found then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her he may not divorce her all his days um And then uh, I'll come back to that in a second. And then let's look at the first Samuel, second Samuel passage. Second Samuel 13 verses 14 through 16. We are full on questions just so everybody knows. I'm just running through the ones we've already received for today. You'll have to come back next Friday to try to get one in. You got to come right at the time it starts. I apologize if that's inconvenient for your schedule. We have to have a way of doing it. Uh, But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her. This is Amnon who uh, rapes his sister, his, his like half-sister. And um, he's a son of David. And they're in the royal, you know, homes or whatever. Uh, then after he rapes her, it says he hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon, excuse me, Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong. And sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And so he, he kicks her out. He refuses. And it, side note, Amnon rapes his, his sister, his half sister, because he loves her. He's lovesick. sick. It's actually literally the passage says he's lovesick, sick. And then, um, then he hates her immediately afterwards. And I think that this is a really good red flag for us. If, um. If we follow our hearts, oh, but I'm just in love, I'm in love. And, and love is justification for then doing things with people that are before the time. Then what Amnon did was was only wrong because she didn't consent. But notice that what he did, he then hates her because he's embarrassed, he's ashamed. This is what we can do a lot. Uh, a man will say sin with a woman and then he hates the woman he sinned with because she's a reflection of his shame now. And this is this is what I call mismanaged guilt. I don't just hate myself for what I've done. I hate you because you're a reflection of my shame, and this is one of the many problems with Amnon. Okay, but what's the question? What's the question here? What's the dilemma? Um, in one passage, we're told, um, "Hey, if, if 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 a man seizes a virgin and lies with her, and they're found, now the the debate is: Okay, is it consensual or not? Let let's set this aside. Is it consensual or not? Uh, maybe it was. Maybe it's not." And uh, then the man who lay with her, shall give the father 50 uh, of the young woman, 50 shekels of silver. He has to be obligated to take care of her now. I think that the second passage gives us interesting context to this, right? Look at her attitude. She's like, this is wrong. You know, not only have you, have you laid with me, but now you're sending me away. So now I will simply be one who has like lost my virginity, who's been slept with, and then is less interesting to other men. Whether that it's because they think I'm not going to be faithful or because it's just a cultural stigma. The point is that she actually preferred, like she actually preferred that he just become her husband. Now, this is because they have different values than you have, right? We don't value marriage the same way that they did. And we don't value the same things that they do. Like our value of marriage is extremely low in our culture. Marriage is entirely a self-serving, you know, feature of humanity in, in, in pop culture, not in Christian belief, not in real biblical views, but it's just a self-serving thing. You get married because you want to, it's about feeding yourself, satisfying yourself, bringing joy to yourself. Uh, we've removed all the stigma of divorce. You've had divorce. You've had three divorces. We don't want you to feel bad. So we've devalued marriage. We've made divorce, not a big deal. So we look at through the, through this, this through very Western eyes. And in some cases that can be helpful and some it's harmful. Realize this. What this passage does to me, and I'm not really entirely sure um, where your concerns are here, Tyler, but what this passage does to me is it tells me that it was in the woman's interest that the man was forced to marry her and he couldn't leave her. It was in her interest. Now we read on and they could refuse this. The point is the man had no rights. The man was required to marry her, give give the money over, which is part of the normal deal there for when they join the families together. And then to stick with her and he couldn't leave her. The man lost his rights because he violated her rights. Do you get that? He lost his rights because he violated her rights and that the woman very likely was going to say, yes, I I do prefer this. But she could also refuse. So the father is the one who speaks for her in this culture and he could say, no, I do not want this, this man. So the father being someone hopefully who has wisdom and loves his daughter. I don't know why people imagine jerk dads who don't care about their kids making these choices. But if you're going to follow the whole of the law, then the dad's obviously caring very much about his daughter. And so he's going to make a choice that's going to hopefully be the best for her. I I think this would work in that culture. Um, And so I I get why it's weird in our culture, um, but it seems like it's trying to make the best of a really bad situation. And that's a lot of times what the law does. The law isn't always, this is what's best. It's more like, well, this is what's best with the mess that has been created by the sin of man. And that's sometimes what we have to deal with. What's the best thing to do now that all this big disaster has happened? Jesus acknowledges this too when he talks about the laws about marriage. And he says, they go, why did Moses allow us to divorce our wives? And he goes, because of the hardness of your hearts. So we find that even the whole teaching about divorce is only allowed because men and women create messy, sinful situations in life. And so it was allowed because of the hardness of hearts. And so I would look at laws about, like, say, slavery being allowed because of the hardness of men's hearts. Laws like this being allowed because this is a real situation that's going to happen. And they're ge- they're being given, you know, the best way to deal with the disaster that has been caused that might give the woman the most rights and take the rights away from the guy, actually. So that's how I would look at that. Um, um, some say it's consensual, but this contradicts. Yeah. So, okay. One thing you did say, Tyler, is you suggest that Deuteronomy 22 is about specifically rape non-consensual sex the 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 man rapes the woman and this is because in second samuel she's like you should you should take me now um i don't think that's a strong case um i guess i'd have to look at the greek or the hebrew and spend some time on it for the for if deuteronomy is about that i just wouldn't say deuteronomy is about rape because second samuel is about rape right because if deuteronomy is about just a man sleeps with a woman who is you know in this situation like then um, if that's the situation, then it would apply to rape or non-rape, right? So it would still apply if it was a more of a generic thing to second Samuel, it may be that it's about rape. I don't remember. It's been a while since I looked at that in more detail and off the top of my head, I don't have it. So, all right, we'll go to the question 13. Lovely day to serve the Lord. That's a nice YouTube channel name. Hey, pastor Mike, we're talking about self-worth in a young ladies group. And I wanted to ask, what is the biblical view of self-worth? Um, I will say, um, it's complicated. it's complicated. And it's extreme. My understanding of the biblical view of self-worth is that each of us is made in the image of God, and this gives us amazing self-worth. The value of you, like you are more valuable than a dolphin, a monkey, a dog, a a fleet of trucks, like you're more valuable than so many other things. Like one human soul is more valuable than the entire organization and structure of Apple. Apple right? Or of, of large corporations or something, or in a sense, an individual is bigger and better than a nation. So our value is very high, but, but we're also sinners and we're in the mud. And so we've taken this image this person in the image of God, and we've committed sin and we have sinful temptations and sinful tendencies and foolishness is bound up in the hearts of, of, of us from the beginning, it says in scripture. So, uh, my heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. So like I'm valuable, but I'm not good that's a problem and so it's extreme value way up here goodness like not very high at all and so oftentimes when we want to talk about self-worth we want to speak of how good we feel about ourselves and how good we are and christianity brings us to humility and humbleness to realize like you're not good you're not good not by comparison to god by comparison to people perhaps but but you know, if if I walk into a prison and I ask who's a good prisoner, and I'm only comparing prisoners to prisoners, like who did the lesser of the crimes, I'm not really measuring goodness here, right? I'm just, I'm just measuring how they, you know, compare to each other. And um, as Scripture says uh, in in one rather long verse, that uh, comparing ourselves to ourselves is not wise. So um, the uh, yeah the, the the worth is way up here. We have incredible value, but we're also in the mud with our sin and we're not good and so christ redeems us but then we become children of god so we, we go this roller coaster great value but i'm a but i'm a sinner who's lost and then i give i put my trust and faith in christ he washes me clean now i'm forgiven all that ungoodness is forgiven now i'm adopted i'm a child of god i belong to his kingdom but we're never to let that humility leave us and this is something that uh, i think is missing in a lot of the 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 teaching that goes out to like especially women's groups i don't know why but for some reason in women's groups there's such a desire to feel good about self that we skip over some of these difficult things like if we talk about how we all fall short it's always like um, it means the opposite of what scripture means it's like you know we all fall short as in it's no big deal but scripture is like we all fall short it's a really big deal we should have a great appreciation for god and him creating a sinner image we should have an incredible awareness of our and humility being brought low because i'm a sinner Who's, who's, who's lost apart from Christ. I don't think arrogantly about myself. I don't think that my opinion is automatically the best one. I don't think that I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, because what I really deserve ends up being some not good stuff because of my sin. But then I come to Christ and I, then I stay humble, but my value is restored completely. So we have these two extreme views, two extreme views, and we've got to hold both of them together of, of the lowness and the humility that comes in Christ, but the great value that there is in our redemption. In our initial creation, that I think is a, a biblical value of self-worth, and and I'll add more to this, which is to say, that same self-worth applies to every other person, right? Because every other person is is uh, creating the image of God, is sin has sin has fallen short, and has the potential of coming to Christ and becoming a brother and sister in Christ. And so I I look at them and I go, my self-worth is nothing to do with me comparing me to you. We're the same here, with the glory and the humility and the mud and all of it mixed together. Um, Usually what we see is, um, I want to feel good about me. Um, And that ends up being by comparing myself to others and feeling better than them. That's not Christian. By acting like I'm not a sinner, (laughs) like I don't have major issues in my heart. That's not a Christian thing either. Those are the things I'd want to avoid. Let's look at question 14. And I'll move a little quicker because, wow, I'm going along today. Silas Abrahamson says, how do you deal with pride? I find it paradoxical. I often get proud of how humble I am. And when I notice my pride, thus leading to more pride, it just gets into an infinite regress of layers of pride. Um, Well, I'll say this. um, If you're proud of how humble you are, you're not really humble at all. Because humility means that you think rightly of yourself. So there's nothing to be proud of with actual humility. Humility just goes like, It's like opening your wallet and saying, I got $7, which is not very much money and realizing that it's not very much money. And then feeling really good about yourself because you acknowledged how little money you have. So if you feel good about how, how humble you are, I would, I would argue that there's a good chance that you're not actually being humble. You're pretending to be humble and you feel good about how well you're faking it. I could be wrong. Forgive me if this doesn't apply to your life. Okay. So Silas, I'm sorry if this doesn't apply to you. This is just my thinking on the, on the issue. If I think goodly about me because I'm so humble, I'm not really humble. Like I never was. I just was putting on a good act, a good act. And I started feeling good about how well I was acting, man. Look at how much I'm not taking credit for how good I am. I'm doing a really good job there. But wait, if it's just honesty, if if humility is just accurate self-image, is just seeing me for who I really am, not thinking more highly than I should, then there's literally nothing to be proud of. Like true humility doesn't create pride. Fake humility creates pride because you never really thought that lowly of yourself. You were pretending to, and you felt really good about how you were treating yourself less than you deserve because you really are great. But boy, I was treating myself poorly there. I was pretty good. Um, There's my thought on that. Uh, dude, Joel has a question. Joel Holmberg. Hi, Pastor Mike. In what ways, hi, Joel, can we love our neighbor or is it Hoel Holmberg, probably Joel, right? Last name Holmberg, I'm guessing is Joel, not Hoel. How can we love our neighbor and the lives and live lives that honor God in times like these when many of us can't congregate and instead spend a lot of time at home? God bless. Um... Maybe I'm being too simplistic here, but my answer, and I'm going to try to move quickly here, is, um, you know, loving your neighbor is, you have a million opportunities now. Like here you are online, you know, you're in, you're in social media right now, you're, you're typing in the live chat. You have a lot of opportunities to love people right now. And you have opportunities, whether you're sending letters or you're, I mean, just imagine if you lived in remote Alaska, whether, and you have no neighbors around you for miles and miles, you could still love your neighbors. You just can't interact with them as often as you would have liked. So it's more about like our maybe our attitude for how we do treat people when we encounter them, when we go out of our way to be a blessing to them, than it is just how often we run into them. Um, I would argue that you know Sunday morning congregating, gathering for Sunday church isn't the best opportunity to love my neighbor. It's a good opportunity to gather together in fellowship, but oftentimes loving my neighbor is like the opportunity, how I treat my neighbor when they park in front of my house and I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, loving my neighbor in that sense might be like when you when you see people going through a hard time and you try to come alongside and aid and help and assist in some fashion. Um, I, I think there's plenty of opportunities to still love our neighbors, even if we're not... In our normal routines, we're probably just not seeing them because we're not perhaps thinking about them. We're maybe thinking that opportunities to hang out with people equals loving our neighbors, and that maybe that we're just thinking too narrowly about it. I'll take the next question. Aaron Rampersad says, What do you think about the claim that Jesus Christ was uh, that Jesus Christ was based off of jesus bin ananias in josephus's jewish war oh man um aaron if i've looked into this it was a while back um so let me offer a couple thoughts um jo- uh, jesus ben-, ben ananias man i'm trying to remember the details about him I'll, i have to look him up but i'll just say this um Nobody thinks that. <laughs> that's what I'll say. Like when you look at historians, actual legitimate historians, like this isn't like a theory that's going to be floated. Because the reason why it's vague to me is because it's one of many, many, many theories where they're like Jesus is based on and they try to fill in the blank. These things are generally ridiculous. And I'm going to approach it that way. Now I, I say that, I've earned the right to say this because I've looked into Jesus is based on Homer. And and Jesus is based on, um, uh, there's like a dozen other different figures that Jesus is supposedly based on like he's Osiris and he's based on Mithra and Jesus is really, and that's why Christmas this and that, or Jesus is based on, um, uh, one of the videos you got, some of you guys have probably seen because it seems like it's done really well is, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, Apo something or other. <laughs> I totally spaced on it right now. Uh, at any rate, I looked into enough of these to know a couple things. One is they're always bunk. They're always lame. They're always really bad. They're always really thin on evidence. They're just vague claims people make. They make a couple little connections. Well, this is like that. And this is like that. And then they just move on. Um, I So I know this, that when you examine the claims carefully, when you look at the timelines, when you look at the characters, when you look at the writings of the Gospels, um, I mean, how is it that in First Corinthians 15, we're getting like Jesus, the Gospel being preached, the death and resurrection of Christ is being preached within a few years. In Jerusalem, within a few years of the events happening, at minimum, I mean, probably within days in reality, right? But for sure, historically within a few years, yet, you know, Jesus spent in Ananias and jo- Josephus' Jewish war, at least his Jewish war wasn't even written yet, right? Like he's still a little boy. He's like, he's like a baby or something at this time. So I think um, like that stuff just historically doesn't work. But also when I've actually looked at historians, like legit historians, and I don't mean Richard Carrier, he's legit in the sense he's credentialed, but he's, he's, a really bad source for people he's, he's, a, he's the, like a premier, one of the premier Jesus mythicists, him and uh, uh, Robert Price, who I think you can safely just not listen to um, but, but when you look at actual historians talking about you know, things we know about Jesus you look at like bedrock facts, like stuff that atheist, Christian uh, Jewish, just agnostic historians will say is historically true about Jesus even if they don't believe the Bible's the word of God then you come up with a big list of things that show that Jesus is not a copy of anybody. He's like legit. Like there just really was a Jesus. Like you, Let me give you some examples of historical bedrock facts that you're going to get like consensus of scholarship across atheist and all of the groups that agree, right? Jesus was a real historical figure. He really um, was born in Nazareth. He really had 12 disciples who followed him. He was really known. I'm not kidding. I'm not making these up. These are like Consensus beliefs about Jesus from even non-Christian historians that Jesus was known to perform miracles and do exorcisms Whether those were legitimate or not legitimate is not part of the bedrock It's it's just this is what he was known for This is what people believed about him that that Jesus then preached and considered himself This is a really interesting one God's eschatological agent that's a fancy way of saying Jesus thought he was fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament. <laughs> this is something Jesus thought about himself. This is where he uses the phrase son of man, which they think is an authentic. Even the most liberal scholars think Jesus did call himself the son of man, and this did connect to the Old Testament and prophecy. Um, they believe that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate over at, at Passover, specifically at Passover. They believe that Jesus' disciples did betray Jesus and actually turn their backs on him, excuse me, and shamefully fled. Then they believe that Jesus and his disciples, excuse me, and others had experiences that they believed were the risen Christ. They genuinely believed they had seen the risen Christ alive from the dead, and then they were willing to suffer great harm because of this proclamation. They went from terror and fear to faithfully proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus because they believed they saw him alive from the dead. This is kind of a lot of stuff to have as bedrock facts about Jesus. So when somebody comes along and says, maybe Jesus was based off Jesus Ben Ananias, then I want to say, that's bunk. Like that's, that goes completely against the consensus of historical research on who the authentic Jesus really is. That's even if you don't take the Bible as God's word. Right. So this is, this is what I'm saying. Like the internet is like 300 years behind in research (laughs) when they promote these types of views and It's good stuff. We got so much, so much evidence for Christ that it's, um, it's good. All right. Question 17, healthy bleach says, I've felt cut off from the Lord. When I pray, I wonder if I'm talking to myself and if everything I hold dear is wishful thinking. Why won't God help me when I'm crying out to him? Healthy bleach. Listen, please, please, please get uh, a believer around you who's gone through this before. Like try to find someone, not just a pastor, but somebody who's gone through the kind of thing you're going through. Find somebody, you know, just ask him. You ever gone through a hard time, like where you just, you felt this way, cut off from the Lord. Like where you wondered if you were, if everything you held dear was wishful thinking, you felt like you're talking to yourself in prayer. Find that person who's gotten through it, overcome it and has grown strong because of it and let them help you through this. Please do not do it alone. And don't just ask any random Joe Schmo who's never gone through what you're going through because they're probably not going to be equipped to help you very well, most likely. Um, I will say this. I have felt that way. I have felt not cut off like rejected, but cut off like, I wonder if I'm talking to myself and if everything I hold dear is wishful thinking, just like you. My short version of this story, because we're running out of time here, at least the time I've allotted for today, um, is that I, because of sin in my life, it opened a door to doubt. Doubt started and it snowballed and it turned into a, a, just a big landslide of doubt. And then I started digging into apologetics trying to find tough answers to all my tough questions and I had a lot of very serious tough questions and I slowly got all my answers. I mean I got all the significant answers. I just checked them all off all the major biggest issues and I was like I was shocked there was so much evidence to support Christianity. But the problem is after all that after all my intellectual answers were received I still felt doubt. And I remember thinking to myself, because I was very honest with me, and I thought, I can't think of good reasons to doubt, but I still feel the doubt. I don't understand why. And I realized this is a will decision. I will trust the Lord no matter what. I remember one time driving to the beach with my guitar in hand. Well, I didn't have it in my hand in the car while I was driving, but I had it in the car. And I drove to the beach, and I get out, and I'm there, and I'm just going to have like a time of worship. I'm by myself, just sitting there on the beach, singing to the Lord. And I was like, I was trying to do something spiritually to just lift the the angst and the difficulty that I was having. This is a true story. This is just exactly how it all happened. And I drove there and I'm there and I'm worshiping and I feel nothing. I believe it's true up here. I think I trust the Lord, but I'm not sure what's going on. My heart's so confusing right now. So I worship. You know, I do it for a little while. I don't feel any better really bothered me I wanted to feel better you know and it had been this way for months and this one particular day I did you know doing things that I think might help me feel better I just want to feel better that's all I care about right now to be honest and um, and so finally I I, I remember praying around the beach and just stopping and praying God um, I don't feel any better but I'm at least mature enough to know this I'm going to trust you anyways and even if I don't feel better I'm still going to worship you even if I don't feel any better I'm still going to trust you I just choose to trust you even though my feelings aren't any better I walked back to my car and here's where I thought on my walk back to my car, maybe because this felt like a turning point, like this choice to trust God because I knew it was true. I, 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 trusted. I really, but I just didn't feel, I don't know what was wrong with my heart. I felt like maybe this will be the turning point. Maybe now I'll feel better. I walked back to my car and I remember reaching for the handle of the car door thinking, I still don't feel any better. And then I, and that was when I thought to myself, but I meant it. I'm going to trust even if I don't feel better. So I put my stuff away. I drove away. I still didn't feel any better. It was a little while after that. I was reading in Genesis. And this was a very uncommon for me, just real life story. I'm reading in Genesis and I'm reading in Genesis about the flood. And it says that the flood waters began to recede. And it was, I felt like the whole, this is very rare. I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to me right there and told me that this is a flood I've been in. I've been in a trial. It's a great flood. But that the waters are now beginning to recede and that my crazy heart, and this, all this doubt and struggles and emotional craziness that I'd gone through, like losing sleep over it and stuff, that it was going to slowly recede, not suddenly go away, which is what I was hoping for, but it would slowly recede. And then I felt like the Lord told me it'll never get that bad again. And I wrote it in my Bible. I put a date on it. Um, I don't think I even have that Bible anymore as a whole Bible, <laughs> but I put a date in it to mark the day and a question mark because I thought, am I hearing from God for real right now? Because I'm going through so many weird things, you know? Well, months go by and it recedes. And my joy was restored. And my hope is restored. And my confidence was increased. And all those things came as I patiently just chose to trust in God no matter how I felt. And I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. You know, if you have intellectual questions about God, seek out those answers. They are there. I've got tons of stuff online. Uh, this is why I do apologetics. is because I did it for me first and then I just started sharing it with others. But, um, but that choice to trust has to happen sometimes, regardless of how we feel about it. That's a difficult and hard life lesson. But since then, God has turned that hardship into an online ministry where it helps other people. Cause I know what it's like to go through that. So I hope that's a blessing to you. And I realize it might not make you feel better, but it might give you direction. And that direction might be the right direction. Trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. That's you giving your heart to God. Lord, this thing's not working, but I'm going to trust you with it until it is. Question number 18. Zane Potter says, is a will to fight for this country in opposition to a faith in Jesus? Furthermore, is there provision in scripture for self-preservation from things such as home invasion, foreign threats, etc.? I think script... I'm going to give a super quick answer now. I think scripture does give you justification for self-defense, though there are times where you lay that aside. As a witness of the gospel of christ and you just suffer anyways but i think there is justification for self-defense in scripture uh and i think we have an obligation to defend others who are innocent around us that's actually an obligation so that someone breaks into my house and they're not just stealing my stuff right but they're, they're threatening the life of my loved ones to shoot them attack them i think is appropriate and right and good it's not fun i don't like it i don't enjoy it i think it's the moral thing to do um, when it comes to like fighting for your country, I think that there is a question of whether it's just or unjust particular act. Okay. So yes, like, yeah, you, because fighting for your country can be the same thing on a larger scale, just like a cop can chase down and, and tackle somebody because they're, they're stopping this purse snatcher from getting away. They can also abuse their power. Right. So the question here is when you, you know, anytime you're using violence is, is it truly justified? And that's going to be individually assessed. Um, I do think it's wrong to say I can kill anybody my country tells me to kill because I'm following orders. That's what some of the Nazis said after World War II. I was following orders. But they should have obviously said, I refuse. This is immoral. This is murder. So I think there's, I think there's such a thing as a just war. I think a lot, even in a just war, I think a lot of unjust things happen. But there is such a thing as doing, you know, violence because it's the right thing to do in that scenario. And it has to do with protecting the innocent, with, uh, defending, um, defending those that need defending and uh, and stopping uh, true oppression from happening. That's my short answer. I know you want more scripture on that, but we're just for the sake of time, I'll we'll move forward. Um, I think scripture supports all of those things. But, uh, Jody Wainwright has a question. Why does it seem Jesus lied to his brothers in John 7? I already know what you're looking at. Verses 8 through 10. John 7, verse 8. Okay, they want Jesus basically... Jesus's brothers mocked Jesus. Like they did not like what he was doing. Um, They kind of were ridiculing him in this passage. And um, Jesus is like, he's done the, the you know, the, the wedding at Cana. He's done these different things. He's done various miracles and his brothers are hearing it. And they're like, what? What is going on? Who does he think he is? And they don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Lord. So the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see your works the works you are doing for no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now this sounds like they're supporting him. Jesus, go show everybody how great you are, but it's all mockery because verse five says, Oh, there it is on your screen. Verse five says, but not even his brothers believed in him. So they don't really believe him. They're mocking him. They're mocking him. Oh, go and show yourself to the world. Like tell everybody, which would actually just get Jesus in trouble which is what eventually happens when he shows himself to Jerusalem publicly, very openly, crucifixion. So they're not concerned for Jesus. They're irritated. They don't believe him. Jesus then says, his response, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Okay. After saying this, he remained in Galilee for a little while, at least. His brothers, they went up to the feast. Then Jesus went up, not publicly, but in private. Is Jesus lying when he says to his brothers, I'm not going up to this feast? I think what um, the context gives us a greater context of go, what going up to this feast means. When Jesus does officially go up to the feast, Jerusalem, he goes up and he's sitting on the donkey. And they're shouting, Hosanna. And he's showing his works and his goodness to the world. And he's claiming he's Messiah. He's showing he's the son of David. This is him going up to the feast in the very public sense in which his brothers are suggesting. Go and show yourself, show Jerusalem, show all the Jews who you truly are. He does this in the final feast in Jerusalem. So when he says, I'm not going up to this feast, it's not, he doesn't mean I, I will never go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to skip the feast altogether. I think he means I'm not going to go up in this open, open, public show myself to the world sense that's what he's not doing in this particular context so then he goes up after they go up and he doesn't go up publicly but in private so i would suggest yeah he's um he's just saying i'm not going to go up publicly and i think the context supplies us with that extra information there then we have the next question number twenty, which is from Craig Burnett, who asks, "What is the difference in the gifts of the Spirit in a Christian and a non and non Christians displaying the same gifts, such as patience, gentleness, peace, etc." Yeah, this is actually an interesting question. Uh, so we have like a list of the gifts of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self control, um, uh, gaming skills. Wasn't there one more? <laughs> what am I skipping? And um, and and we have all these these gifts, but. It's not as though unbelievers never show any of these things. So it's possible to have things that are fruits of the spirit in your life, but not as a result of the fruit of the spirit, right? Not as a result of the Holy Spirit. The difference is the source. I am this way because of the spirit of God in me. So I'm exhibiting a patience that's coming from the work of Christ in my life. I'm exhibiting, I'm exhibiting a love and a joy that's coming from the work of Christ in my life. So it's more about the source than it is just the quality of the thing you're doing. I think that unbelievers can love. I think that you can love somebody. You're not a Christian. You can really love people. I think it's weird if Christians are like, unbelievers have no joy, have no peace, have n- none of those things, right? Patience, goodness, faithfulness. There's no, there's no unbeliever that's ever faithful. No, I would say that there are there are sometimes differences in the joy. Okay, I have the joy of the Lord. You don't have that joy. Unbelievers don't have the joy of the Lord. That's true, okay? But it doesn't mean they have no joy of any kind. They rejoice in all sorts of things. They don't love the Lord. They don't love perhaps as self-sacrificially as, as Christ does, but more to the point, they don't have that joy as a result of the work of the Spirit. They don't have that love as a result of the work of the Spirit. There isn't the relational outflow of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life bringing these things into, into their lives, into their character. That's the point. That's the point. Um, so yeah, it's not as black and white as maybe some would make it right. Like as if unbelievers just simply have no love for anything. Um, gosh, uh, Paul rebukes Demas. Demas is, is is a guy who abandoned him. And he says, Demas has left me having loved the world. And Paul uses the word agape there. So if you want to say agape means like this, like self-sacrificial love, well, Demas felt that kind of love for the world. He agape the world. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Demas, agape, he loved. We just love the wrong things, loved it in the wrong way. Or we love people, but outside of God. Like Babel, there's, you know, the Tower of Babel represents a bunch of humans working together, doing great things together, but it's all in rebellion to God, absent of God, ignorant of God, rejecting God. And so all the teamwork and the compassion and stuff, it's in the context of not loving God. So then there's a problem with the love in that, that respect as well. All this to say, I think, yeah, life is complicated. I think scripture gives us the ability, gives us the tools to tackle that complexity. So yeah, it's about the source, not just the gift. And it may also be about the quality of the gift. The kind of patience a believer has is about waiting on the eternal promises of God that he's given us. An unbeliever doesn't have those promises to wait on, so they can't exhibit that kind of patience. The love is in the context of God's love for me. I love him the way he loved me. I love others because of the representation of Christ, the the example of love that he gave. The joy I have can't be taken away by anything that happens in this world because it doesn't depend on anything that happens in this world. So yeah, there's some some things to think about. Y'all, thank you so much for joining. I will be with you Monday for a live stream at 1 p.m. on the topic of the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing. We're going to be approaching the Garden of Gethsemane pretty quickly here. Then I will be with you Tuesday interviewing Vocab Malone on the topic of Black Hebrew Israelites, which is uh, a religious group, a religious group. They're called the Black Hebrew Israelites. And we'll talk about them. They believe that they are the true Israelites. And Vocab Malone has spent a lot of time learning about them. And he'll be kind of the guy answering my questions to understand them better. And then um, I think we have more stuff coming next week too. I'm trying to think. What else is it? We'll see. We'll see. And the Passion Project is going to be getting another edition. Keep your eyes on Christ. Remember that... Um, Life is complicated, but it is the simple truths of God's word. It is the simplicity that is in Christianity that I think gives us the tools for navigating the complexity of life and honoring Christ in all that we do. You're going to have a million reasons to get your eyes off of the Lord, to get distracted, to get self-focused, to get discouraged. But put on the armor of God, right? Run with endurance the race, go back to those things and keep it simple. That's it. Lord bless you.